You are listening to Season 2 of Future Ecologies. Uh, good morning, Adam. Good morning, Mendel. That last episode was pretty snazzy. Oh, thanks. <laughs> it was a lot of work. I believe it. Speaking of which, this episode I hear is about working a little less. Yeah, well, uh, I wanted to ask you something. Okay. Have you ever heard of somebody named Conrad Schmidt? Conrad Schmidt. I read a book in my early 20s by a fellow named Conrad Schmidt, and I wrote a book called Alternative to Growth, and another book called Workers of the World Relax. And once upon a time, when I was younger and prettier, I started a political party called the Work Less Party. Never got elected, but it got a lot of votes. Yeah, the work I, I totally remember the Work Less Party. It was an actual political party in BC, and they mounted candidates in local elections. But it's a double entendre, right? Because they also threw a lot of parties. <laughs> yeah, they were good parties. You were talking, of course, about the work class party party. This is just speaks to the differences between you and I. <laughs> I'm still not that much of a party person. And so I love the ideas that they were talking about, but I never actually made it to any of the parties. Uh, they were pretty wild, but uh, that's, that's a bit besides the point. Um, the, the point is that I spoke to Conrad and I talked to him about what he thinks is maybe the biggest failure of the environmental movement to date. Well, tell me more. Sustainability is super, super simple if you understand how efficiency works. Now, this is pretty serious because the current environmental eco-movement has become mostly about making things more efficient. More efficient toasters, fridges, more efficient cars. If we stick to our misunderstanding of how efficiency works, the sustainability movement could be just as catastrophic as the coal lobby. We have to have a broader understanding of what sustainability is all about. Then it becomes simple. But the story I'd like to always start with is the connection between ecological sustainability and efficiency. Because without understanding the relationship between labor efficiency and sustainability, we come up with a lot of bad ideas. It wasn't that long ago that the primary fuel source for human beings was wood. We used to chop down woods and we used it for cooking and we used it for early steam machines. And we started transitioning to coal. Now coal is twice as efficient as wood. You also don't have to chop down as many forests. From an ecological perspective, and the definitions that we're using these days, coal should have been a sustainable solution over wood. But we know it wasn't. Because basically what happened is the efficiency that coal introduced into the system just rebounds into more growth, more steam engines, the industrial revolution. So this is known as something called Jevons Paradox. William Stanley Jevons was an English economist who was troubled by the parabolic consumption of coal at the end of the 19th century. He wrote, It is wholly a confusion of ideas to suppose that the economical use of a fuel is equivalent to diminished consumption. The very contrary is the truth. 
What Jevons saw was that new, coal-efficient inventions were, perversely, leading to a greater and greater use of coal. And this idea isn't just about fuel and energy, it's about efficiency in general. All of these things, if it becomes cheaper, you've increased the primary expense in the production of anything, really, is the labor cost, because it's all really labor. So it's the, if something becomes cheaper and more efficient, it probably means that there's less labor going to it. So jumps in efficiency free up labor and capital to be expended on new production and consumption. Against our best intentions, efficient technologies drive us to use more and more resources overall. And history has a habit of repeating itself. Now we're going to jump to the beginning of the 20th century. And petroleum starts to replace coal as the primary fuel source. Petrol is twice as efficient as coal, twice as efficient. And you also have less sulfur and less mercury. So from a ecological sustainability, we're using the definitions that we're using today for sustainability. Petrol should have been a sustain, it should have been a green miracle over coal. But we know it wasn't, because again, the efficiency rebounds into increased consumerism. It puts a mandate on the economy to grow. And the reason why this is so important is a lot of the ideas in sustainability at the moment are about making things more efficient. More efficient fridges, uh, fuel, aeroplanes, more efficient boats, more efficient uh, cars, more efficient everything. But we've been making things more efficient now for 3,000 years. And the exact same thing will keep on happening. And our ecological footprint will just keep on getting bigger and bigger because we do not fully grasp the interaction between efficiency, labor efficiency, and our ecological footprint. This gets pretty scary when you start thinking about the implications of possible breakthrough technologies like fusion. It might be clean power in terms of carbon, but it could also provide extremely cheap and effectively limitless energy. Human projects that were previously completely out of reach could suddenly become affordable, and our overall resource use and environmental impact will just keep climbing. But Conrad has an example of how this pattern has been broken in the past, how we can prevent efficiency itself from ricocheting through our economy, transforming into industrial proliferation. But let me put it in a story, because I love stories, because I believe that economics is, is blind unless you look into the past and see how it relates to the future. We're going to go back just over 100 years, and Henry Ford comes up with this marvelous, fantastic idea, which is the mass-produced tractor. Ford released his tractor to American farmers in 1918. At this time, a huge portion of the American labor force was directly employed in agriculture, about a third of all workers. Farming was very labor-intensive. You had a lot of people to till the grounds, to sow the seeds, to carry things. Tractor comes along, one farmer climbs on, throws his seeds, boom, 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 job done. So a lot of people lost their jobs. A lot of farmers went bankrupt. A lot of people that they employed moved to the cities. There was an advantage to make the farms bigger and bigger and produce more with fewer, fewer people. And so, according to Conrad, this is partly what contributes to the Great Depression. And the president at the time, Roosevelt, he had to solve this problem. And now remember, this is a depression. People are starving. And he comes up with an idea. 
make food more expensive. Radical for a depression. The way it worked is he put restrictions on the size of farms. Because the farms had restrictions, you couldn't mechanize as much. So a farmer couldn't have as much machines doing all the work. So he had to employ more people. Yes, the consequence was food was more expensive, but you had more people employed who can then afford food. The way we can reduce our ecological footprint is if we can start adding more people employed where we're not producing any new product. Organic farming is a great way that you can have more people employed. You can reduce your ecological footprint by counterbalancing the efficiencies elsewhere in the economy into farming. This is just one way. Again, there's countless ways that we can figure out how we deal with the efficiency from one sector of the economy, move it so that we got people employed and with healthy income. Yeah, this is something I've actually thought a lot about as somebody who grows food on a small scale and thinks a lot about efficiencies. And also, you know, the the weakness and the flimsiness of that term efficiency, right? It's the same, it's got the same sort of feeling as GDP as a measure of goodness. It leaves out so many other values that might be ultimately more important. For example, soil health or uh, working conditions or, again, like people being involved in, in the production and consumption of their food in their own places. And if, if efficiency dictates, that will never happen <laughs> if we're just talking strict economic efficiency. So I, I see that as, yeah, a really interesting solution. What, what else is uh, Conrad proposing? The next way, which is also critical, is reduce the work week. Reducing the work week has two effects. Now, you'd probably want to reduce it to a three-day work week. The idea is instead of taking the efficiencies in the economy and consuming more so that we keep people employed and grow the economy, is how about sharing the work where we all have a, a decent living and we're not creating this extra consumerism. So part of achieving this greater social goal that is equity and affordability and health and creative actualization. And less consumption, right? Exactly. That in addition to making sure that everybody has jobs, that we all work them a little less. Or a lot less. Or a lot less. So there are all these big kind of macroeconomic things, these policy solutions that are maybe possible and maybe advisable. But on the flip side, there are all these things that we can do as individuals to improve our lives. And so I was thinking that in that spirit, we should work a little less. What do you mean? Well, there's another podcast that I really like. It's called Outside In from New Hampshire Public Radio. And they've already talked about working less. So I thought, let's just plug them in right here. And we could take a little break. Sound good? Awesome. Do you want to go outside? Yeah, of course. Such a good idea. Hey, this is Mendel, literally phoning it in from the great outdoors. Uh, Stick around after the episode because I will be catching up with producer Jimmy Gutierrez. For now, this is 32 is the new 40 from outside in. Hey, there I am. Forgot to plug in my headphones. Hey world, this is producer Jimmy Gutierrez, and I recorded myself one 
early, early morning a few weeks ago on a hunch. So I'm here early in the morning and I just want to check out to Pillsbury Street uh, and I want to see how much energy we're wasting and I want to see how Sam Evans Brown feels about it. How would you describe the office building at 2 Pillsbury Street? It is a new, nondescript mm. uh, rectangle. It's just a chunk of chunk of brick. Yeah, it's not like Soviet Russia, right. but but it's not you know it's not interesting. So what do you think goes on in there when uh, when no one's around? I can only imagine parties, dance parties, dance parties. Standing in the parking lot from the sixth floor, it looks like the entire newsroom, all the lights are still on, which is cool because that means they've just been chilling like that for the entire night. So I went inside of our nondescript building. Sam isn't gonna like this either, but I'm taking the elevator up. Sorry, Sam, no stairs this morning. And right as I step off of the elevator into the lobby, the entire lobby is like extremely well lit, like burning my retinas. I don't even think you can turn those off. They just don't have a switch. Just on forever. Another thing that really stood out was how GD warm it was. <laughs> Gosh darn. Cool darn warm. It's warmer than my apartment. I, feel, I could lay down on the floor without a blanket and knock out. Like a building this size, you could probably turn the heat off all night and it would probably only drop a couple degrees. Is that right? And, and you could turn, yeah, I mean there's like a ton of just like stored thermal energy in a building this big. So. I'm guessing that you've thought about this stuff before. I think about this constantly. <laughs> okay, okay, perfect, okay. <laughs> and and so you're, you're a positive, solution-based guy, so like what, what can we possibly do? Just get a digital thermostat. <laughs> Jesus Christ, it's not that hard. It's ain't rocket science, people. So is it fair to say that our office wastes like a lot of energy even when we're not here? Oh my God, completely. Okay, so we could do things differently though, right? Like like people do at home, like turning off the lights when you leave a room or the heat way down, like things that save both money and emissions? Yeah, the, I, that is definitely true. Energy use is actually lower on weekends because of all the offices and factories and stuff that are closed. Uh, and that's even with building managers like the ones at NHPR making expensive and wasteful energy decisions Ooh. like you observed. Uh, so yeah, it's totally something we could do. Okay, okay, so I wanna I wanna take this one step further. So what if, now follow me, Sam, what if we didn't come into work on Fridays? Oh, uh, yeah, that would save energy. Right. But this just feels like it's about you wanting three-day weekends. What? <laughs> That's a part of it. But, but I'm here to make this pitch. So after some really basic-ass Google searches, I am prepared to say that the 32-hour work week can save the world. <laughs> Uh, you are going to have to do some work to convince me of this one, Jim Gutierrez. <laughs> Today on Outside In, Jimmy hey. has a proposal. Probably one that's not going anywhere. Hey, don't undermine me before we even get this thing started. About what to do with all the wealth and productivity that modern technology has brought to us. Maybe instead of buying more stuff... What we should be buying for ourselves is some time off. Uh, just give me two ticks, I'll find the right ones. This is Andrew Barnes, and he's looking for headphones. 
He is the founder and managing director of Perpetual Guardian. That's New Zealand's largest corporate trust company. They handle wills, estate planning, you know, like rich folk stuff. I have a will. Do you really? Yeah. Damn, I ain't got nothing. (laughs) Uh, He said he first started rethinking the traditional work week after reading an article in The Economist. Which was talking about two surveys. One had been done in Britain and one had been done in Canada. And the British one said that people were productive for two and a half hours a day. And the Canadian one said one and a half hours a day. Okay, so that's within a full eight-hour workday. An hour and a half of that spent getting work done. American industry has met the challenge of war. American factories have achieved the impossible. American so this idea that working longer hours might actually be less productive is not a new one. Performing manufacturing miracles. During World War I, British munitions factories were supplying shells for the Western Front. Workers there worked seven days a week, sometimes in excess of 80 hours. And researchers found out that not only were workers more productive overall with the day off, but their quality of work also improved. We have a 19th century work construct. And because it's there, we naturally assume that it is the solution. And so Barnes thought, hey, this has got to be the case with my workers here too, right? So he emailed HR saying he wanted to test run a 32-hour work week. Thinking he went mad, his HR, she deleted the email. The thinking was that there's no way workers would just give up a day of work and pay. Actually, it's pay for five, work for four. And um, so she was a bit stunned. The firm ran an incentive-based test run with the shot that if productivity stayed the same or improved, the paid-for-five-days work-for-four might become permanent. And you know this is part of my pitch for a reason. (laughs) So workers became more productive, marginally overall, producing just as much in four days as they had in five. And with that extra time off, they spent more time with family and friends, they gardened, they exercised, and that's not all. The the really interesting thing about this starts to become around the broader social impact. Specifically, environmental impacts. What happens when you take 20% of the cars off the road during rush hour? Or if those big, nondiscreet office buildings like ours at 2 Pillsbury Street can power off for an extra day? It's thinking about a different solution to how we deal with things like environmental problems. You know, stop just doing what we're doing. Try something that's radically different. And if you do that, actually, there is going to be, you know, quite a material, I think, a material beneficial impact. Welcome to your three-day weekend. All right. So uh, so what do you think about those findings? I'm intrigued. I will confess I'm intrigued. I like the idea, uh, you know, because we're, sometimes we're not our best work selves uh, when we're at work. I do like the idea of working less time but and that would just force me to be my better work self mm. but but I do have to say that it feels like there are only certain fields that this this sort of win-win can apply to right yeah I mean for now that that feels true um, I think it's easiest to start with project-based work like creative work you know anything where you can get like momentarily distracted or off track and that translates into getting less done which is a hundred that's like a hundred percent describes right. us <laughs> right we're like the prime candidates for this slack never check slack oh my goodness <laughs> so we, i mean which is what makes this my pitch and I, and i think this should be available for all workers but for now what i'm saying uh is that this idea is something that we should do uh here at nhpr and specifically us at outside in oh 
Yeah. And, <laughs> and Sam, I, I want that extra day. I want to know if I would be less stressed by the overall like state of the world, uh, if I would have more energy. And I want to prove that we would get just as much done. Yeah. Well, what, so what's your next step here? Well, I just got to convince our boss. She is, you know, she is a tyrant. <laughs> she is known for her tyranny. <laughs> Don't mess with Erica. Could we just start with you introing yourself and what you do here? I am Erica Janik, and I am the executive producer a.k.a. the boss. Yes, yes, you are my boss. I am your boss. Yeah, and, you could... And Sam's boss. And Sam's boss. Could you fire both of us? I think so. Oh, that's pretty tight. Be careful. Yes. Okay, so as you know, I'm working on this story about the possible benefits, environmental and otherwise, of working a 32-hour week. This is a thing that I am aware of. So now we're going to make this a little more real. Uh, and I want I want to make this a personal experiment. So can I convince you that I should be working four days a week? Jimmy, I'm still not sure what makes this an outside-in episode. Uh, can you believe that I was, I was hoping that you'd ask that? Just like if you, if you had a guess, how many hours do you think you work a week? I'm not going to say in public. <laughs> not because it's too high. Let's put it this way. I practice what I preach. So this is my personal hero, Juliet Shore. She's an economist and sociologist at Boston College. Back in 92, she wrote a book called The Overworked American, The Unexpected Decline of Leisure. And she thinks that it's time that we rethink the way we work. If you look historically, you know, we've had massive automation and mechanization, you know, first in agriculture, then in industry, you know, manufacturing. And through most of the, the 20th century, or a good part of the 20th century in, in most places, that was met with shorter hours of work until in the U.S., you know, in the last 40, 50 years, not so much. So the length of a work week has declined steadily for decades in most of the developed world, but the U.S. is a clear outlier here. So we're still working the same number of hours per year as we were back in 1980, even though places like Japan, Australia, the U.K., France, Germany have all seen shorter work weeks. Uh, And Erica? I'm here to tell you that's not just because of our bosses. It's also due to the pressures from the spending side. And so if we ask, you know, what are the challenges to this, the idea that we have to keep raising our standard of living higher and higher and higher and higher. Okay, I I see. This is how we sneak this onto an environmental show. Uh-huh, right, right, right. And so far, despite some of like our best efforts to like, ramp up renewables, uh, carbon emissions still rose in the U.S. last year. And a big driver of that was manufacturing or just overall economic growth. Absolutely. Technology alone is not going to do it unless we decelerate the economy. And, and there's more to it than that. There's also one, one really important thing about climate emissions is they're very skewed toward the top. So the people at the top have much bigger carbon footprints. Okay, so basically how it goes is that as incomes increase, so does consumption. And because we haven't decarbonized the economy, emissions increase. So her argument is that one way to reduce emissions is rather than buying more stuff, bigger houses, we should buy some leisure time instead. That's right. Yeah. And and this isn't just about like buying less stuff. 
It's about like the kinds of stuff that people buy when they have more time. Individual households respond to changes in what we might call their time budgets. So how much time do you have available and how does that affect the way you live? So let's say I work a 60-hour week. That means that instead of walking or taking public transit to work, I'm going to drive to work. And instead of when I go home, instead of like having energy to cook for myself, I'm just going to hit fast food. One of the things that happens is we uh, reduce the sort of less productive time in our day when we work fewer days. So there's the higher per hour productivity. There's the other thing that people in the four-day work weeks value their jobs more, they are happier, they are less likely to quit. You know, the thing that it makes me think about is, you know, Jimmy, that my husband quit his job so that I could take this job. Right. He works in a really high-stress environment, and he had been working— He's a doctor, right? He's a doctor. So he'd been working, like, 70-, 80-hour weeks. No. And that was just our life. And he was getting really burned out. Um, And so he quit his job. And we moved here, and I took this job. And just listening to her talk, something that it's made me realize is, you know, my husband hasn't been working in the last few months. And when people ask me what he does, I feel— I feel embarrassed to tell them that he's not working, even though his value is obviously a lot more than just working a million hours a week. And yet I somehow still feel this like reflexive need to justify it to people. But actually having him have more time has made our life mm. so much better. Like it's not like I it's not like things were really bad or anything at all, but I didn't even realize like what a toll it was taking on us until he wasn't working 80 hours a week. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, it seems like I don't really have to, like, hard sell you on this becoming a story uh, about the personal benefits of this, uh, about the 32-hour lifestyle. Well, I am concerned about meeting deadlines. Mm. <laughs> a shortened work week, it's hard. We have a lot of projects yes, within we do. our unit. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> but I think I'm sold. Hey! Okay, okay, okay. So, so what if... I was thinking bigger, right? Like, what if what if we were able to get, like, the whole team down to 32 hours and we still managed to put out, like, Outside In and all of the other shows? That sounds amazing, but also feels like I can't actually... I don't have that power. I can't actually make that decision. You can... You're the boss. <laughs> you can make this. We can make this happen. I am the boss. We can but... make this happen right now. <laughs> My boss powers have a ceiling. Ugh. Ugh. I think you've got to convince our CEO. The big boss, CEO Mark Kaplan. And what if he actually wants you to take a pay cut? That would be a big decision. Have you talked to your wife about this? Uh, Allie? Yeah. I have not talked to her, no. Maybe you should talk to Allie? Before giving... Yeah, just to double check. Yeah, that seems responsible. <laughs> I don't want her to hear this and be mad at me. <laughs> She's already got enough reasons. <laughs> Um, I guess uh, I guess we'll hear from Allie um, after a break. Okay, team, we're back, and this is me bothering my lovely wife Allie one night while we're at home. So I got good news. Uh-huh. Our pizza's cooked. Good. Yeah. 
How are you feeling right now? Exhausted. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to fantasize for a little bit. What do you think I would do if I were working a four-day work week, and what kind of effects do you think it would have on me? You would sleep in longer, because I get you up super early. (laughs) (laughs) And you would take quiet time in the morning to, like, make tea, possibly read, catch up on the news. And then you just coast into creative time. Little bit of exercise, and then... No, I am I am dreaming. <laughs> you I mean, that. you have you've been working like you went into work at eight, and it's now past eight at night, and you're still working. And Juanito is biting my leg. Juanito is our cat. Hi, buddy. You want to come up here? So I'm gonna talk with Mark, um, and we're gonna we're gonna really talk about making this 32 happen. Ideally, I won't have to sacrifice any salary. I won't have to make any concessions in that way. But you know, I'm a public radio producer i'm not I'm, I'm doing well but i'm not making bank so like if if i had to give up anywhere from five ten to possibly up to like 20 percent of my salary is that still something that you think would be a good idea obviously with loans and saving up for a house like it would be nice to not let go of that but for the sake of how I know how you work and like your mind and your health I see that being worth it to me because you like transform when you have space and I would much rather find ways to make up what we'd be losing in that financially if it meant that you were able to have that space than to um, say no. I I know you would be so much more balanced. I know you'd be so much more happy. So I have to say that I would give up that 20%. Yeah. Well, I just have to go and convince Mark now. So I guess wish me luck. Good luck. All right, let's get you another glass of wine. <laughs> are, are you cool with that? Can we get you another glass? Yeah, I really like that. <laughs> okay, so it's 1.30 on a Wednesday. This is kind of like the culmination of this episode, is me going and talking with our CEO um, <laughs> and pitching him uh, to see how he would feel or if he would buy into uh, this idea. You know, to save the planet. Hey, Mark. How are you? Good, how you doing? All right, one, two, check, check, check. One, two, one, two. Okay, so we're back in the studio. Turns out these microphones still work. (laughs) Okay, so did you talk to Mark yet? Are we all going to be working a 32-hour work week? So I, I did get him in the studio. Hi, Jimmy. I'm Mark Kaplan. I'm the interim executive director at New Hampshire Public Radio. And I gave him the hard sell. I broke out some of my strongest uh, it's arguments. It's called the Productivity Week Policy. Have you heard of this? I have not. 
Okay, so this is similar to what you've probably heard of in other countries like reduced working hours, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Yes. But this is like that except for the fact that you get paid for five days while working four. I love it. Can you get me from seven down to five? We can work on that. (laughs) So I laid it all out, the potential to save money and emissions on energy use within the building, the lower emissions lifestyle, the fact that productivity went up and all the work still got done. I had a couple more cards to play too, things that uh, the CEO of Perpetual Guardian, Andrew Barnes, told me, like the fact that we could solve a lot of our recruiting issues. Trust companies, let me tell you, are the dullest business you've ever come across. Um, But we have people, you know, queuing to join us because we are seen to be innovative. Now, all of these things add to the bottom line. Barnes also said this policy had a huge positive impact on the folks that had been around for a long time, uh, as far as like their engagement and just overall morale. One of my guys who had a IT, you know, he, he was able to pick up his daughter from school for the first time ever. You know, he, you're not going to get rid of that guy in a hurry, because for him, he's got something that money can't buy. I think those are very good points. I think that there's a lot of opportunity to create environments that people feel more comfortable working in that can provide a better work-life balance. I don't think that accomplishing these things is easy necessarily. And so there are hurdles that end up being there that are, that are beyond the internal operation of the organization itself often. Especially if you're a media organization. Right. I think it. I think it is organizations. It is um, professions like ours that need to rethink work, and then maybe you take a step back and look at the kind of work that we're producing and seeing if maybe we are producing better work. Um, By the way, um, I have three kids. My 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 son who lives out in California uh, works for a company that's on a four day work week. Ah. <laughs> and how does he feel about that? Uh, it works well for him. Uh, he and his wife have a three-and-a-half-year-old, and, you know, it gives him a little time for, for family during the week, and, you know, there's a lot of good reasons to do it. Whoa. Okay, so he's seen this, he's seen this up close and personal. So, right. So what did he say? Well, so his son actually works um, for 10-hour days. Oh. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's a little different. But at the same time, like, he, uh, he does know, like you were saying, about the, uh, you know, having that third day off. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, I mean, if we're being real, uh, I think, you know, we all knew what would happen. He, he didn't want to go there. He didn't want to go there. I think it's well worth considering further. I'm not ready to commit to it right now. I think that, uh, number one— Well, I have to say, I mean, I do—I understand part of the pushback to this idea. The CEO pushback? What, where's the class <laughs> solidarity? What is this? <laughs> So should I just roll, we're going to have it out here? Yeah, yeah, let's have it out. Let's have it out. I will say that, you know, there have, historically, there have been a lot of environmentalists who have argued that countries that don't have a lot of wealth can't have more wealth because that might worsen climate change. And I'm, like, I'm just hesitant to to go there. Because, like, well, who's saying that? Right. You know, the rich countries are always saying that. And, and like, we might be able to do both. We might be able to solve poverty and climate change. Or maybe we solve neither. (laughs) It's probably more likely. (laughs) But, but, okay, so that aside, so this might work for us. Like, it could be a win-win for people with jobs like ours because we stop checking Twitter too much. But what about jobs that are already all hustle? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, 
servers at restaurants, TSA agents. You know, it seems like this wouldn't necessarily work in a job like that. I do think for us it would be this win-win, but but you're I mean you're right. Like right now, this is not viable yet. Uh, it doesn't mean it shouldn't be. Uh, but but all of this brings me to um, Charlotte Graham McLay, and she is a journalist I talked to, and she was one of the first people to profile Perpetual Guardian uh, when they were still in their trial run. I think that the productivity thing can only go so far, you know, in the same way that you can say, oh, you know, it's actually, uh, you know, better economically for our society to not be racist. And that might slightly win some people over. But at the end of the day, you actually have to believe that being racist is bad to end racism. You know what I mean? So it's like you can say, oh, your workers will be much more productive. So even if you're a mean old capitalist, um, that might appeal to you a little bit. But surely an employer has to believe that the culture of work is fundamentally broken and something massive has to Something has to be cracked inside it in order to kind of start rebuilding what we think work should be. And that that brings us back. I haven't told you yet, but that brings us back to what what Mark Kaplan, our CEO, told me. Oh, oh, like there's he gave some ground. There's some ground. Um, so after our meeting, we had talked off mic, uh, just for I mean, just so I didn't get fired. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he, I mean, he wasn't having any of the 32 hour work week stuff. Uh, he was pretty much just humoring me. And, um, but you know, but I was, I'm not playing like I'm not, you know, and so I kept pushing. Um, and he ended up saying that I could work 32, but I would have to give up a fifth of my salary and that, you know, the cost of my benefits would go up as well, substantially. Whoa. Yeah. Uh, are you going to do that? Like, uh, this feels like we've come a long ways from this, like, I'm going to have three days, three day weekends for the same pay and just prove that I can do the same work. Right. Yeah, I mean, I value my life more, my my life away from work more than I value my work life. And I think, like, even by doing that, my work improves. Um, so, yeah, Jimmy's going forward with four days... 20% less pay. <laughs> How does Juanito feel about this? I think he's going to love it. <laughs> That's a lot more playtime for him. You know, if, 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 if when I got hired, there had been two offers on the table, and one was the same except 20% less pay mm-hmm. and four days a week, I'm, I'm actually not even sure what I would have picked. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck, Jimmy. Thanks, man. Doesn't it still get back to this question, though, of, like, where does this stop? Mm. Like, you know, how much do we actually have to be at our desk to get our jobs done? Funny you should say that, Samuel. <laughs> I just read this report from the New Economics Foundation. <laughs> and uh, they're making the case that uh, the ideal work week is actually 21 hours. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I was saying! <laughs> Hey, Future Ecologies is back. If you like that piece, you should check out the rest of Outside In. They do amazing work. That was great. So I, I'm curious. I I understand that at the Third Coast Conference this fall, you actually got to meet up with Jimmy and follow up with him on what happened. 
Hey, Jimmy. Hey, hey, how you doing? I'm good. This is amazing from like uh, when you emailed me and I was like, oh, Mendel. And it's like amazing that we're in real life having a conversation about this. So yeah. Now we're here. Yeah. Yeah. What Jimmy told me was after he started this experiment, it took a number of weeks to organize the processes of handing off some of the things that he was doing or figuring out how the team was going to handle him not being there one day a week and just getting into the rhythm of what this this new pattern of work and life really looked like. And by the time that he really got into the swing of it, he did see all these amazing improvements in his life. He used this time to just relax or to be creative and do his own thing. And it allowed me to really step back from my work and let me really critique my work let me listen to people that I really enjoyed and then fall down rabbit holes of, of, of new makers, which I drew a lot of inspiration on in my work. Since then, I really became more healthy. I, I mean, I, I was running more, I was breathing better. I had time to cook for myself. He just felt overall, physically, mentally, emotionally much better. But then... For the first three months that I was like experimenting with that and going through that, everything was kind of amazing. I was, it was a two income household, so I was very like privileged. I didn't have to worry or stress out too much about bills, which can't be said for everyone. There were a lot of like life changes that I, that I went through in that time, which coincidentally or ironically, maybe uh, I also got divorced during that time. Oh, and maybe, maybe she thought I had too much time. Uh, but no, I think it allowed us also like the space to more, um, honestly examine our relationship and, and the ways that it was and wasn't working. So I, I do credit the, the time that we had to be more honest and reflective with each other. And so since we had parted and, and now I was providing for myself, I had to go back up to 40 hours because I couldn't sacrifice that 20%. I needed to, I needed to pay bills. So the experiment lasted about three months uh, and now he's back to work. However, even that three month just kind of experimental time, I think really helped me a lot of those principles of like healthy lifestyle, being more deliberate with my work. All of those things have kind of like translated over, even though it was just that little bit that I got to like live the good life. I still am feeling the effects, I think, every day. Everyone should have that. Everyone should be able to work 32 hours or produce an indie podcast and work as much or as little as you choose. After all, as we relentlessly pursue newer, more efficient technologies, finding ways to work less isn't just an obvious benefit to your health. It might be the best way to keep our collective ecological footprint in check and break our habit of ever-increasing production and consumption. But, of course, the decision to do less work has to be weighed against your own personal circumstances. What you need, what you can afford, a change in his material realities brought Jimmy back into the status quo of a five-day work week. Yeah, it's not easy to do this in this society. It's true. But Conrad, on the other hand, could cut enough expenses that he could reduce his work week indefinitely. I didn't have the same experience as Jimmy. I used to be a software developer and I was looking at my expenses and I had this car that I used to drive to work. And that car was costing me, once I added up the insurance, the fuel, the fact that it was broken most of the time needed to be fixed, it was costing me around 25% of my income. I figured, you know what? I'm not working a whole day every week just to pay for this friggin' car. If I changed to a bicycle, I would not need to work as hard. And I went to my boss and I said, 
You know, I don't really do that much here on a Friday. How about I don't show up and you don't pay me for a Friday? It lasted less than 30 seconds for him to agree. That was quick. I want to talk about something. What is it? How about I don't show up here on Friday and you don't pay me? Okay. And that's exactly what I did. I stopped arriving on a Friday and I started riding my bike so that my income stayed the same. But because I had more time, I could get involved in communities, I could get involved in organizing actions, I could come up with ideas, I could uh, write books, I could make films, I could start a political party. And the process of changing to a reduced work week changed my life. I just want to note for the record that I took today off from work to be here. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> this doesn't count as work, does it? <laughs> this is a lot of work. Um... Thanks for listening. This episode of Future Ecologies was produced by me, Mendel Skolsky. And me, Adam Huggins. Conrad Schmidt is the author of Alternatives to Growth, Efficiency Shifting, and Workers of the World, Relax. Jimmy Gutierrez is a radio producer with New Hampshire Public Radio. He helps make Outside In and The Second Greatest Show on Earth. Thanks to Outside In for lending us their episode. They are a huge inspiration for what we're up to, so go subscribe to them right now. Their episode 32 is the New 40 was produced by Jimmy Gutierrez, Sam Evans-Brown, and Taylor Quimby, with help from Justine Paradise, Ben Henry, and Daniela Alley. It features music by Blue Dot Sessions and a theme song by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our theme song is by Sunfish Moonlight. And we also use music by Blue Dot Sessions on this one. Just in case you were wondering why this episode has that warm, cozy public radio feel, you can find all of their music at sessions.blue. As the human being behind the entity known as Sunfish Moonlight, I'd just like to thank Blue Dot Sessions and all the other musicians like them who provide music and help audio producers all around the world work a little bit less. Special thanks to the Third Coast Conference for being such a magical, welcoming gathering of radio people. And to Cassie Allen for putting up with me editing this piece over the holidays, unironically. As always, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and iNaturalist. The handle is always Future Ecologies. This episode was produced on the unceded traditional territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people. If you like the show, please share it with a friend. If you like it a lot, let us know why. Leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen. If you'd like to support the show and get access to bonus monthly mini-episodes and more, join us over at patreon.com slash futureecologies. We'll be back next month. We're working hard, but not too much. <laughs>